Welcome to the Neville on Fire podcast. Neville Goddard was a 20th century spiritual teacher who offered a profound message. Your creative imagination is the very source of reality. As we learn to use it properly, life becomes intelligible and rewarding. Join your host, Ed, to explore our most valuable asset, the human imagination. This is episode 9, Neville and Buddhism. In this episode, we'll continue an exploration of various aspects of Neville's teaching, and this time with the help of various quotes from Alan Watts, who was a lecturer on Zen Buddhism. So both in episode 8 last time and today, I'm making references to several quotes by Alan Watts, so please check the show notes. Uh, For episode 8, I actually uh, updated them to um, show you the links and the recordings by Alan Watts can be uh, hours long, and for that reason I gave a timestamp for each quote. The first point has to do with awareness of being as God. So let's recall conscious experience. Um, as I recommended that you read about it in the exercise back in episode one, but uh, there's a nuance here that I thought was worth pointing out when going into a state of self-awareness or self-remembering, self-consciousness. The experience is a wordless sort of witnessing, but um, there is no so-called witness. It's not an entity. It's the experience itself that is intended. The reason I'm bringing that up is because I think it's fairly easy to get caught up, if you're new at this, in trying to um, nail down a specific entity looking for the witness or trying to identify or locate with a witness. And yet, there is no witness. It's only the witnessing. It's the experience. So in our first example here of a quote to back up our view of this, um, he comes up actually with a a really good formulation. He says, quote, the thinker of the thoughts is an abstraction that we create out of memory. Now, I've never heard it expressed that way. Pretty brilliant. The thinker of the thoughts is an abstraction that we create out of memory. Um, some other place, he, Alan Watts says, the Godhead is never an object of its own knowledge. Well, let's turn our attention to what Neville says in this. And uh, one of the best quotes that I found from Neville along these lines was from the book Freedom for All. He says, the most difficult thing for man to really grasp is this, that the I amness in himself is God. It is his true being, or father state, the only state that he can be sure of. The son, his conception of himself, is an illusion. He always knows that he is, but that which he is is an illusion created by himself, the father, in an attempt at self-definition. It's just that last part that I thought was striking, and uh, I never heard it expressed quite like that before. I'll just repeat that last phrase. He said... Uh, He always knows that he is, but that which he is is an illusion created by himself in an attempt at self-definition. The second point is just some observations on our trials and experiences with both systems. So with this point, I wanted to point to a seeming contrast in the experience of contemplating the words of Alan Watt on one hand and those of Neville Goddard on the other. So as Westerners listening to Neville, um, I think it's natural to feel that we want to positively do something, to understand something, to conquer something, to find a higher self. And of course, we want to manifest something. That's one of the most popular aspects of his teaching. On the other hand, uh, the experience in listening to Alan Watts might lead to a strange sort of uh, 
flatness or absence of emotion, just a feeling of <laughs> being put back to square one without any insight. I think the reason for that is because the Zen Buddhist argument is not the sort of logic that we're used to. No, this feeling of flatness or just being left cold uh, is not particularly pleasant, and it, it doesn't even seem desirable. It just seems frustrating. But um, at a certain moment, I thought, well, wait a minute, let's be careful here, because this could actually signify something along the lines of letting go, uh, being devoid of my usual feeling of myself. In other words, at least in a small way, a, a sort of psychological death, which is perfectly aligned with Neville's approach, because there you have to continually put off the old. Um, and it's not a willful approach on Neville's part, where you can force or coerce the creative principle. No, he says the whole thing has to operate by belief, by faith. You can't force the issue. So I think the two approaches lead to a common experience of having a feeling that is not the habitual one of yourself. Point number three, the promise. Is it the same for everyone? You know, there's two aspects to Neville's teaching. One is the law, which is what we focus on most of the time. And then the other one is the promise. Um, according to Neville, each person is destined to awaken as God. And the way Neville discusses it, it seems that he's saying that everyone, the world over, will undergo the same visions, the same mystical experiences, in other words, the, the biblical drama, just as he did. Even though uh, in presenting other people's dreams and visions, um, people from his own audience, he did allow for uh, different uh, variation, and he commented, commented on uh, individual variation. Now, if he meant, though, that the promise, this uh, awakening, awakening experience and going through the same uh, visions and so on, uh, exactly the same way, uh, the world over, regardless of your, your background and so on, I would be very surprised at this, and I would actually have a hard time accepting it, but I really don't have any other information on it. Neville, for his part, did not address other schools of thought and other religions, um, ex with the exception of Judaism. As far as Alan Watts is concerned, I did find this quote. He said that yoga is the state in which the individual self finds that it is ultimately the supreme self. So without considering the uh, individual experiences in terms of visions and uh, biblical dramas and so forth, at least Alan Watts does confirm the original premise that uh, the individual is destined to awaken as God or find unity with God. Point number four, our nature, unitary yet fragmented. Neville continually refers to the seeming other, and the world is oneself pushed out. He also said at one point that, uh, standing in front of a group that he was lecturing, um, he said uh, to them that he's only trying to convince himself because they are simply aspects of himself pushed out, so to speak. So it becomes something like an exercise where you have interaction, interaction with other people and within yourself you're sort of secretly asserting to yourself that the other person that you're having the, the discussion with, um, that you're confronting, is in some strange way your own psyche or some part of it. So another way to think of that is that there are not a lot of personal instances of consciousness, but rather there's only one consciousness. You know, I believe that Neville was expressing all this before the popularization of uh, Jung's concept of projection, where you see in another that which you really don't want to realize and accept in yourself. Um, in any case, uh, Neville puts the matter much more bluntly uh, in a stark phrase. This is the one that I was thinking of. Quote, 
Everyone in your world is nothing but a dead image revealing who you are. We breathe life into these images. So Alan Watts, for his part, confirms this. He says, the colossal reality, the energy that is everything, that is a unitary energy, that is one, plays at being many. Point number five is all that you behold, although it seems without, it is within, in your imagination. Well, that's the quote from William Blake that we're familiar with by now, having listened to many of um, Neville's lectures where he repeats it. And I discussed this at length in episode two. That was pretty much the subject of the a whole episode. Um, now, it's very similar to the last point, where the world is yourself pushed out, but it has to deal, it has to do um, not with just with other people, but really with the world at large, with um, all the circumstances, events, situations, and so on. Alan Watts, for his part, talks about the principle of mutual interdependence and says, quote, the world is not existing independently of those who witness it. So there we get um, direct confirmation of this idea that the uh, notion of an independently existing external world that we normally have in Western society uh, is actually false. I'll quote that one more time. The world is not existing independently of those who witness it. Point number six, detrimental effects of institutions. Well, in episode three, when discussing difficulties uh, with um, methods and techniques and so on, I talked about the detrimental effects of institutions and how we might counteract that. And in the last episode, I drew attention to uh, an interesting um, YouTube. Actually, there's a, a mirror site, which I've got in the show notes for today's episode on BitChute, um, Sylvia Ivanova's New Earth channel. So she explains that our real history was deliberately eradicated and falsely reformulated. This caught my interest because she's not the only one who has been calling into question over the years um, the accepted institutional education and academia. Um, there's all kinds of discussion by, let's say, John Taylor Gatto. He's the uh, author of Dumbing Us Down. There's a fascinating testimony by Norman Dodd, who is a congressional uh, committee research chair assigned to investigate the, philanthrop the philanthropic foundations. And uh, there's a very interesting videotaped interview. Um, see the link in the show notes for that one. But to return to Sylvia, um, she outlines the events of the Reformation. It took place back in uh, what we consider to be the 16th century, although there again, the, the dating of the history is um, called into question in a, in a severe way, according to her evidence. Um, but at this time of the Reformation, um, there was a mass cull of forbidden books, um, and she laments also the perpetuation of the myth of Darwinism. And now in this, Neville agrees wholeheartedly. He says that there isn't a shred of evidence to support Darwinism, and yet everyone is obliged to swallow it in the school systems. And here I'm thinking myself of a book uh, that was published by James Perloff, which was a thorough repudiation of Darwinism. Well, whether the answer is a strict creationist view or something much less obvious, for the moment, that's sort of beside the point. My point in bringing all this to your attention is to say that Sylvia is making exactly the same point about institutions that I was making back in episode three. She said that a deep inculcation in people's minds that we are descended from monkeys and cavemen and so on was done specifically to remove the possibility in our minds that we might think of ourselves as anything but inferior, unworthy, 
incapable, uh, random accidents in an absurd universe. And quite unexpectedly, in the middle of a lecture, I heard from Alan Watts, quote, we have all been brainwashed by several centuries of put-down theories of man. Point number seven, the nature of evil as a necessary part of creation. You know, in episodes seven and eight, we discussed several aspects of the nature of evil. And taking Neville's claims, um, substantiated by scripture, it's pretty clear that uh, evil is an undeniable part of creation. It was It's part of the totality, and therefore it exists in potential in everyone. Um, and it's also a matter of exercising free will to, to be free from it. Now, either you embrace the golden rule, or you run the risk of your own ill will against others being visited back upon you. That seems to be the law. And at the same time, strangely enough, evil itself, what it consists of, seems to be subjectively defined. So I think that aligns perfectly with Alan Watts' view. He says, quote, You can see at one level that the evil side of things is part of the total harmony. And then he says, the joy of life is to be in the process of getting rid of it. Point number eight, two contradictory aspects. It looks like there's two stark differences between Neville's understanding of Christianity and Alan Watts' explanation of Buddhism. Now, Neville did not discuss other religions or systems directly, as I mentioned, as far as I know. But he did one make one uh, striking comment, which is uh, an obvious comparison with Buddhism. He said... Quote, other religions teach you to kill out desire, whereas he himself, by contrast, counsels you to honor your desires um, as gifts from God, because they flow from your state naturally, and so they kind of move you forward. Now, at the same time, Alan Watts um, does qualify the idea of Buddhism killing out desire. He says that's not the whole story. Um, it's only how the dialogue begins. Now, another aspect... Um, that seems like a stark difference is the whole idea of the human imagination itself as a creative power in Neville's view. But there again, um, Alan Watts, while he doesn't discuss that, at least not that I've heard um, in so many, so many words, he says that we misinterpret Buddhism as being just passive. And uh, that's not really the correct view of it. That's just sort of the Western uh, perspective of it, whereas the reality is much more nuanced. Well, what conclusions can we draw then from this comparison of points between Neville's view of Christianity and Alan Watts' expression of Buddhism? In conclusion, you couldn't really say that the two systems are one and the same, obviously. That would be really an oversimplification. But neither, um, as we've already shown, are they diametrically opposed. There's many points of agreement and points of contact. So it's probably a case of another sort of wave phenomenon, the sort of thing that Alan Watts talks about all the time. That is, um, as long as each system is taken, not in a rigid and literal way, but in a subtle and psychological way, then we could say that uh, in the total picture of humanity, there's an elegant uh, complementarity and mutual assistance between the East and the West. Each system is, of course, aligned with the underlying deep psychological idiosyncrasy that is either in the mind of the Easterner or in the Westerner. And yet, at the same time, we seem to share a common destiny. I think that spirit is really well reflected in a Buddhist text that I have. It's called The Questions of King Melinda. In sort of a preamble before the dialogue, they describe um, the ideal 
conditions of this uh, wonderful city that's beautifully laid out with markets and uh, hills and rivers and lakes and so on. And uh, here, the streets are crowded by men of all sorts and conditions, Brahmins, nobles, artificers, and servants. They resound with cries of welcome to the teachers of every creed, and the city is the resort of the leading men of each of the differing sects. So there, I don't see any trace of bigotry or dogmatism. And for Neville's part, he said at one point, you know, men have made religion a thing to defend instead of a thing to practice. Thank you for listening. Remember to check the show notes and subscribe to the Neville on Fire podcast. 